All right. Good morning, Christchurch. It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Pastor Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Christchurch. And as I mentioned before, we're in week three of Kings and Kingdoms, looking at these different kings from the Old Testament and seeing how God used them and their story to actually influence and uh, make a difference in our own lives, even to this very day. So the very first king, let's go back, very first king we talked about, his name was King... Saul? Okay, yeah, good. Okay, so you remember. I feel a little more confident now. That's good. They're starting, they're remembering. Okay, so last week, uh, after Saul came another guy. We did the first part of his life, and this is a big guy. I mean, when it comes to kings, the guy we did is, is, I mean, he's like the king. You know what I'm talking about? He's like the king. He's like the guy, the man, the big hero. Everybody kind of has heard of his name somewhere, some way, and that, of course, is King David, very good, right? King David is who we looked at last week, and he's this incredible king who does these amazing things. I mean, God does some extraordinary miracles in him, through him. I mean, he starts off as this humble shepherd boy, this really kind of this low kind of socioeconomically, he's this, he's bottom rung guy. And that by, uh, there's a point in his life where he starts to all of a sudden get some momentum and trajectory and his influence grows and his fame grows. And before you know it, the guy is actually made king of all Israel. The guy goes from rags to riches. I mean, he's a rocket ship in terms of what success has to say in David's life. I mean, it's incredible when we take the time to look at what God did in him and through him, bringing him to this incredible place where he is the king, right? And what's amazing is that last week we talked about, we discussed that even when he is the king, made king, that's still not the best moment of King David's life. He has an even better moment that comes after he's king. You would think being made king is like the best moment. No, no, no. With King David, he has an even more extraordinary thing happen to him once he is King. And if you remember, we said it kind of like this. The crowning moment of David's life is not when he's made king, but it's when God speaks to him and makes a promise. A covenant is the biblical word. He makes this promise, this covenant, that through David is going to come the king of kings. Through David is going to come not just David's kingdom, but God's own heavenly kingdom. Jesus Christ is going to come through David and David's line. And in the same way, God extends that promise to us that through us, Jesus and his kingdom is being built. It's being realized in this world. God actually promises to not only adopt us and, and, and build his kingdom in us, but rather through us, we can extend that kingdom even. So it's amazing when we look at David and his life and we think of ourselves and This is pretty spectacular, amazing, successful stuff. This is also the first part of David's story. You see, part one, when we think about David, is great success. But if you continue to follow David's story and David's life, we begin to see and bear witness to greater sorrow. 
as great and fantastic as the beginning of David's rise to kingship in his life, David is a broken man who has great sorrow and challenge and storms that come upon him. That's what we're going to look at today. Just like last week, we're going to move really fast. We're going to cover a whole ton of stuff. So bear with me as we race through chapter after chapter after chapter. Last week was like light and fluffy. I got to show you some fun pictures and stuff. Remember the pictures? This week, I can't show you pictures because it's not PG rated. It's not fun. It's not light. It's graphic. It's very serious. The reality of David's brokenness taking a hold of his life. I'll show you what I mean. Start off in 2 Samuel, around the 11th chapter. You get David having this really uh, discouraging, saddening moment in his reign. You have a moment where David experiences great loss in a multitude of ways. You see, he's hanging out, doing his king thing. He's enjoying the view. He's enjoying the stars. It's the middle of the night. And he looks over, and there's a woman bathing on the top of the roof. Why is she bathing in the middle of the night? Another story, more context that goes with that. Point is, David falls head over heels for this lady named Bathsheba. They have an affair because both of them are married. She's married to a guy named Uriah, who's off fighting for David. Yeah, he's off fighting for David, and while he's gone, David and Bathsheba have an affair. Bathsheba comes to David and says, David, I'm pregnant. David says, uh-oh, your husband's off on the front lines. Everybody's going to know we got a royal scandal on our hands here. So David plots to actually kill Uriah, successfully so. He has all of the troops around Uriah pull back at the last moment, and Uriah is left standing in the middle of all the enemy. The enemy kill Uriah. David marries Bathsheba, and they have the child. God is furious and sad. David has made the decision to lose his moral fiber. His moral fabric has deteriorated, and he has invited into his own life pain and brokenness, and, and even into the lives of others, consequently ending the life of Uriah. It all ends up where God confronts David through a guy named Nathan, David's prophet, David's priest. David uh, feels terribly sorrowful. He's horribly saddened by his own decisions. He has a very contrite and remorseful heart. And God says, look, David, because you welcomed this sorrow into your life, there are consequences to the decisions we make. And when we invite brokenness into our lives, it will manifest itself in different ways. And as a result of David inviting this brokenness in, the child that Bathsheba bears dies. The infant son of David dies. So David knows not only the sorrow of failing morally, losing his moral fabric, he also knows the loss of a child. David does have other children. He does have other sons and daughters. But unfortunately, the story with them is not much better. 
You get to David's oldest son. His name is Amnon. He's an unhealthy young man who's filled with lust and rage, and specifically that lust targets Tamar, his own sister. Amnon finds his sister, takes advantage, and forces himself upon her. He rapes her. David's other son, Absalom, is furious and kills Amnon as a response. Then he flees into exile. David now has lost not only an infant child, lost not only his moral fabric, now his entire family is in shambles. They literally are killing each other. He has lost Amnon, another child. The grief and the sorrow that comes with losing a child. His own daughter, Tamar, has lost her own innocence. And he has to now live with the reality that he not only didn't prevent it, but he didn't do anything in response to it. Which is why Absalom takes out a knife and kills his own brother. And now has fled into exile. David's life at this one time was fantastic and amazing, and all of a sudden it's like it's unraveling before him. It's coming apart at the seams. David eventually does reconcile with Absalom. He welcomes his son back. He does love his children. He welcomes Absalom back. And yet, and yet, shortly thereafter, Absalom gets it in his head that he could be a better king than dad. And so he throws a coup, gathers some guys up, does some political maneuvering, and overthrows his own father to be king. David literally is chased out of his own kingdom. He's chased out of Jerusalem and flees north. He's on the run. His own murderous son is now king. And there's a civil war taking place in his own kingdom. He has lost a child. He has lost his moral fabric. He has lost his relationship with his other children. And now he's losing his kingdom. Grief and sorrow and tragedy heap on top of each other here. David eventually, he gathers some men together and he says, Guys, you're loyal to me. I am the rightful king. My son doesn't know what he's doing. Let's take the kingdom back. They go to war with Absalom. There's a big fight. A messenger comes running up to David and says, David, David, you won. You're king again. We defeated your son. You are the rightful king. David says, That's great. Fantastic. Awesome. But what about my son, Absalom? Is he okay? How is he doing? And the messenger says, he's slain. He's dead. He was killed in battle. And David loses another child. Grief upon grief. Challenge upon challenge. Sorrow upon sorrow. He has lost so much. And yet, it still goes on. 
David gets it into his head now as he's rightful king once again to take a census. Now, a census seems like a terribly practical thing if you're running the government, does it not? However, there's some context that goes to this. In the olden days, back in David's day, the only reason you take a census is to count your fighting men. You only count the fighting men. And the reason you count your fighting men is because you want to know whether or not you have enough men to go to war. That's what you do. You take a census in order to get ready to fight. So, in Israel's history, for David, God is the only one who's supposed to order a census. God is the only one who's supposed to initiate a war. That's not David's responsibility. That's God's decision. And so David is reaching above his pay grade here. David's going around God and making a bad decision. God is livid. He's utterly furious by this. He shows up to David and says, David, what are you thinking? What are you doing? You are destroying our intimacy. I mean, God is so mad, he sends an angel of death to show up at David's doorstep. I mean, have you guys ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? You guys ever heard of that tale of Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, God sends the same dudes, the same angels, to show up to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that the angel actually unsheaths a flaming sword. He's about to strike down David and destroy and level the entire city of Jerusalem. Whoa! Didn't know that was in there, did you? We almost used to be Sodom, Gomorrah, and Jerusalem. It used to be just like one long thing. And at the last moment, David drops to his knees, confesses, and has a terribly, terribly confessional, contrite heart. God does forgive him. But God says, once again, you invited brokenness and bad decision-making, David, into your life. And this time, it affects the lives of others. Because you are going to sacrifice these men. There is a consequence to your decision. And so God gives him a choice. He gives him three different choices. And he says, choose one that's a consequence of the brokenness you invited in. And he chooses the plague. And as a result, 70,000 of David's people in his kingdom are struck with plague and die. David has lost his family. He's lost his moral fabric. He's lost his kingdom. He even loses the ability to stand before God as God's chosen one and feel like, God, I'm doing your work in this world. He loses the intimacy that comes with being God's king. David's life is just horrible, isn't it? Which is little wonder. I mean, by the time the guy's old, he's old King David. Things get so bad, he's old King David now. Things have been so discouraging. It's taken such a toll on his, his life and his well-being that, that at the end of his life, he is considered unfit to be king. Not only uh, in, in a very real sense, but in a, in, a, in a laughable way. You see, back in the day... You knew a king was getting old and needed to be replaced. There was a litmus test in the olden days, and you would simply bring a young virgin in. And if the king could manage to be intimate with the young virgin, he was still worthy of being king. If he couldn't manage any intimacy, he was now considered unfit to be king. David has a young virgin delivered to his doorstep and doesn't touch her all night long. 
he now is considered by everybody unfit to rule his own kingdom. His couple remaining sons vie for the throne and even his legacy is destroyed because they fight each other and they're getting all nasty and eventually one of them prevails, Solomon, but not after another one, Adonijah, props himself up as a king. It just gets bad. David is on his deathbed and he is so discouraged by the latter part of his life. He's so... uh, hurt and burdened by all of this, that his final words according to First Kings are not these magnificent, fantastic King David words. These aren't these, King David, you're the man, wow, you're a man after God's own heart kind of words, okay? He doesn't welcome his wife in and say, oh, I love you and I cherish you and God bless you. And he doesn't welcome his sons in and say, oh, I'm so grateful for you. No, 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 no. King David on his deathbed? says to his son Solomon, who's about to reign after him, says, come here. When I'm dead, I want you to kill some people for me. That's what he does. When I'm dead and gone, I want you to take out some people. I got a list. Here's the list. And he slides it across the table. I mean, this is like out of a movie. That's what this great, fantastic King David who fought Goliath, a man after God's own heart. Oh, King, great King David is this old, withered man in bed saying, I want you to take out some people when I'm gone. You just like picture it, right? Cough, cough, and he like dies. Like what a way to go, right? Could you just picture that? Great King David. <laughs> Great King David says this. You can't, I mean, this is just unreal. He says this. He says, in, in his death throes, he says, therefore, do not, he's talking to his son, Solomon, and he's talking about his favorite general who's been with him through the ups and downs and the whole thing. He says, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are wise men. You will know what you ought to do, wink, wink, and you must bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. And then he croaks. That's great King David? The king so burdened. King so overwhelmed with grief and sorrow that he becomes bitter in his old age. A king who has forfeited his own moral standing, not only before the people, but before God himself. A life that perhaps, yes, had great success and great moments. But even more so, a life that knows heartache and tragedy. I mean, if you had to describe David, knowing the whole picture and the whole story now, what would you say? Is he a great king? Or is he a broken man? And yet I find tremendous power in David's story. 
tremendous power because we ourselves, when we get to the end of our lives, when we reflect on how we've lived and what we've experienced, I hope there's been great joy in your life. Successful, fantastic, amazing spectacular moments that you can even remember and you can picture and you can see those incredible mountaintop experiences. But don't you also have sorrow? Haven't you ever experienced grief? Have you experienced the family infighting and those relational tensions before? Have you, have you experienced the death of a dream, of a hope, an aspiration? Perhaps you have experienced the actual loss of a child. Have you made decisions in your life where you have forfeited your own moral ground and your ability to stand before an eternal, all-powerful God? Have you known tragedy in your own life? Perhaps what is most amazing to me is not that David had all these incredible, spectacular moments or lived this perfect life. He didn't. (laughs) It's way too much pain and sorrow. He's not this example to strive for. He's not this perfect king. There's way too much junk going on in his story. But there is one thing terribly unique, terribly powerful, more powerful than even all the tragedy. And it is the same thing that we talked about last week. You see, despite all that life is throwing at David, despite his loss of all of these things, there is one thing he does not lose. He cannot lose. There is one thing that holds on to him and his life even when he is ready to give up. It is God's promise to him. Even when David is unfaithful and unwise, God has made a promise to David to usher in his kingdom through David, to have David as a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. You see, even when David and his life is messy, God and God's promises continue to prevail. There's one other place where the Bible talks about the final words of David. It comes out of 2 Samuel. These are some of the last words that David said. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, one who rules over people justly, ruling in the fear of God, is like the light of morning, like the sun rising on a cloudless morning, gleaming from the rain on the grassy land. Is not my house 
like this with God? For God, my God, has made with me an everlasting covenant, promise, ordered in all things and secure. Ordered in all things and secure. Even amidst the pain, even amidst the grief, even amidst the sorrow, even amidst the poor decisions that I make, God and God's promise, God and God's covenant is ordered and secure. It will happen. Even as my life and my kingdom falls apart, God in the kingdom that he promises me. That is secure. You see, God and God's promises cling to David, even as David clings to the covenant, to the promises. Let me say that again. God's covenant clings to David, even as David clings to the covenant. In your life, the same is true. God has made promises to you. God has a covenant with you, one that he has established through his son, Jesus Christ. One that promises that you shall be God's child. That you will be part of God's kingdom. And someday that kingdom, it will have no more grief. It will have no more sorrow. It will have no more tears. It will be an everlasting kingdom where Christ is truly reigning as everlasting king. And you and I are promised to be there. Even though we don't have the moral ground to stand before God, He promises His kingdom is about grace and forgiveness and love and compassion. And God has promised you to usher in that kingdom for you. A kingdom that has no more sorrow and no more grief but is defined by Christ and His sacrificial love. This means for us too, whatever life has, both in the joy and in the sorrow, we also cling to the covenant just as the covenant clings to us. As you're sitting in that hospital room, you cling to the covenant. You cling to God's promise that God is present with you and working for your good. When you're sitting in the living room and you're about to have that horrible conversation you've been dreading, you cling to the promises. When you show up to that situation, when you have that moment, when you literally are lying in bed at death's door, you cling to the promise. That God and His kingdom is coming for you. The kingdom of heaven, an everlasting kingdom 
with no more pain or sorrow is for you. There will be life and joy and hope. This is God's promise to you. And so we, like David, we cling to, we hold on to, whether in joy or sorrow, the promise of the living God. His kingdom is coming, and it is for you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for David. Thank you for the joy and the success in his life. And thank you also that we can understand from his story. We can empathize with the challenges he faced, the struggles, the loss, and the grief. For we too, Father, we confess to you, we too bear both great success but also great sorrow. And yet over all of it, in all of it, ordered in all things and secure, is your promise of your coming kingdom. The kingdom you promised through David that you continue to promise to us. A kingdom where Christ is all in all and sorrow and grief have no more role. Instead, there is life and life abundant. Give us the strength and the courage to cling to those promises. To cling to the covenant just as David did. We ask this and we pray this, trusting in the goodness and in the sacrifice and the love of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.